Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for yet another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 82 for the first third of August 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is properly designing an experiment to test Richard Hoagland's hyperdimensional physics. Richard C. Hoagland has claimed now for at least a decade that there exists a hyperdimensional torsion physics, which is based partly off of spinning stuff. In his mind, the greater black governmental forces know about this and use it and keep it secret from us. It's the key to free energy, anti-gravity, and numerous other things. Some of his strongest evidence is based on the frequency of a tuning fork inside of a 40-plus-year-old watch. The purpose of this episode is to assume that Richard is correct, examine how an experiment using such a watch would need to be designed to prove evidence for his claim or to provide evidence for his claim, and then to examine that evidence from it that Richard has provided. Richard has often stated that science is nothing if not predictions, He's also stated, science is nothing if not numbers, or sometimes, science is nothing if not data. He is fairly correct in this statement, for at least the first one and the third one. For any hypothesis to be useful, it must be testable. It must make a prediction, and that prediction must be able to be tested, and that test must result in data that is consistent with what the hypothesis predicted. Over the years, he's made innumerable claims about what his hyperdimensional or torsion physics does and predicts, although most of his predictions have come after the observation, which invalidates them as predictions, or at the very, very least, it renders them as useless. In particular, for this experiment we're going to design, Hoagland has claimed that when a mass, such as a ball or a planet, spins, it creates a torsion field that changes the inertia of other objects. He generally equates inertia with mass. Inertia isn't actually mass, it's the resistance, or it can be thought of as the resistance of any object to a change in its motion. That can be its motion from side to side, up and down, or even its spin. For our purposes here, we'll even give him the benefit of the doubt as either one, the mass or the inertia, is hypothetically testable with his tuning fork-based watch. So his specific claim, as I've seen it, is that the mass of an object will change based on its orientation relative to a massive spinning object. In other words, if you are oriented along the spin axis of, say, Earth, then your mass will change one way, either increase or decrease, And then if you're oriented perpendicular to that axis of spin, your mass will change the other way. So basically, if you are standing versus laying down, your mass will change very slightly according to Richard Hoagland. Now let's simplify things even further from this more specific claim that complicates things. Let's just say that what Richard is claiming is that an object will change its mass in some direction, either it'll increase or decrease in mass, and some orientation, so it doesn't really matter how we're oriented, relative to that spinning object. This is part of the prediction that we need to test. We could get much more complicated if this basic prediction were shown to be true, but as we'll find out, that's not necessary. We're just going to test this basic idea that your mass is going to change depending on where you are relative to some rotating object. 
Now, according to Richard, the other part of this prediction is that one way to actually see this change is when big spinning objects align in order to increase or decrease the mass from what we normally see. So, for example, if your baseball is on Earth, it has its mass based on it being on Earth as Earth is spinning the way it does. But if, say, Venus aligns with the Sun and transits in front of the Sun as seen from Earth, as it did back in July of 2012, then the mass will change from what it normally is. Or, for example, a solar eclipse when the Sun and the Moon align will also change its mass. This is the other part of the prediction that we need to test, and that we can test. Hoagland has many other variations and complicated layers onto this, like you have to be at a sacred or a high energy site, or somewhere near some multiple of 19.5 degrees on Earth, or actually, you don't even have to be near 19.5 degrees, you have to be within 8 degrees of that multiple. So much for a specific prediction. For example, this apparently justifies Richard's begging for people to pay for him and his significant other, homeopathist Robin Falkoff, to go to Egypt last year during the Venus transit. Or Richard taking his equipment on December 21st, 2012, when there wasn't really anything special alignment-wise, to Chichen Itza. Or going at some random time to Stonehenge or to Coral Castle. Yes, this is beginning to sound a little bit more like magic, but for purposes of our experimental design, let's leave this part alone, at least for now. Again, we're just going to test the claim that the mass or inertia of something changes when some massive body aligns with some other massive body. To put it briefly, in terms of his experimental design, Richard uses a 40-plus-year-old Accutron watch, which has a very small tuning fork in it that provides the basic unit of time for the watch. A tuning fork's vibration rate, the frequency, is dependent on several things, including the length of the prongs, the material used, and its moment of inertia. So if mass changes, or if its moment of inertia changes, then the tuning fork will change frequency. If a speck of dust gets on it, it can change its frequency, meaning that the watch will either run fast or slow. The watch that Richard uses was specifically modified by some guy for the purpose of this measurement, which included running wires from the tuning fork out of the watch in order to aid in the measurement process. The second piece of equipment is a laptop computer, and this laptop computer has diagnostic software that can read the frequency of the watch, and it has a connection to the watch as well. So we have the basic setup with a basic premise. During an astronomical alignment event, Hoagland's Accutron watch should deviate from its expected frequency. After we've designed an experiment and obtained the equipment, usually the bulk of time is spent testing and calibrating that equipment. That's what would need to be done in our hypothetical experiment here. What this means is that we need to look up when there are no alignments that should affect our results, and we need to be in some university or place where there isn't any special sacred ley line stuff. When none of this stuff is going on, then we hook the watch up to the computer and we measure the frequency. For a very long time. Much longer than you would expect to use the watch during the actual experiment. You need to do this in order to understand how the equipment acts under normal circumstances. You can't just trust the manufacturer's specifications. Without that, 
you can't know if it's going to act differently, which is what your prediction is, during the time when you think it should. For example, let's say that I only turn on a special fancy light over my special table when I have important people over for dinner. I notice that it flickers every time. I conclude that the light only flickers when there are important people there. Unfortunately, without a baseline measurement, which would be turning on the light when there aren't important people there and seeing if it flickers, then my conclusion is invalidated because I don't know if it's just flickering because of the important people or if it's just a normal feature of the light. It doesn't matter what the manufacturer claims, I need to see how it actually behaves under normal circumstances. So in our hypothetical experiment, we test the watch. If it deviates at all from the manufacturer's specification during our baseline measurements, say a 24-hour test or say a week-long test, then we need to get a new one. Or we need to, say, make sure the cables connecting the watch to the computer are connected properly and they aren't prone to surges or something else that would throw off the measurement. We need to make sure the software is working properly. Maybe we could try using a different computer to take the measurements. We can make sure that the connector port is acting properly. These are all things that one would normally do in a scientific experiment where we want to make sure that our results are going to be believed. In other words, this boils down to the fact that we need to make sure all of our equipment behaves as expected during our baseline measurements when nothing that our hypothesis predicts should affect what's going on. A lot of statistical analyses would then be run to characterize the baseline behavior in order to compare with the later experiment and determine if it's statistically different. One of the most basic ways that this would be done is to take an average and a standard deviation. The average is the sum of all values divided by the number of values. So say you measure the frequency of the watch 10 times every second and you let this run for a week you would have 864,000 measurements of the frequency of the watch. You'd add them all up and divide by 864,000, and that's your average. The average should be what the manufacturer said the frequency of the watch is, which in this case is 360 hertz, or a vibration 360 times per second. The standard deviation is a little bit more difficult to understand, but in large data sets, it's most often a bell curve, also known as a normal distribution, also known as a Gaussian distribution. In other words, if you were to make a histogram of all of those 864,000 measurements of frequency, where the histogram is the number of times you recorded a certain range of frequency, like 360.0 to 360.1 hertz, 360.1 hertz to 360.2 hertz, and so on, it would look like a bell curve, peaking in the middle right at the average. There will be fewer and fewer measurements as you get farther and farther away from that average. A Gaussian has the property that 68.3% of the time, the values that you measure will be within one standard deviation of the average. Now I know some folks listening to this are not math people, so let me explain what this means because it's important. Let's say the average I measure is right spot on the manufacturer's specifications, 360.000000 hertz. I have my 864,000 measurements of frequency, but they aren't all exactly 360 hertz. In fact, very few are exactly 360 hertz. 
I calculate from my data a standard deviation of plus or minus 0.5 hertz. This means that 68.3% of the frequency measurements I have will actually be in the range of 359.5 to 360.5 hertz. Very few will be exactly 360 hertz. What this also means is that the inverse is true. 31.7% of the measurements that I make will be smaller than 359.5 hertz or larger than 360.5 hertz. In physics, the gold standard is a 5 sigma detection. For a Gaussian distribution, 68.3% of the data are within 1 sigma. 95.4% of the data are within 2 sigma, so 359 to 361 hertz. 99.7% of the data are within 3 sigma. 99.994% of the data are within 4 sigma, or 358 to 362 hertz. And finally, 5 sigma means that 99.99994% of the data are within that range. In this case, 357.5 to 362.5 hertz. That means out of my sample of 864,000 data points, either zero or only one point should be outside of that five sigma range. That's my baseline. That means if we run the experiment and we see something outside of that five sigma baseline range, that's significant. Now, those are just two basic statistics that you could run you would also have to do lots and lots and lots of tests to make sure that there isn't a variation from, say, day to night, or that the equipment is insulated from temperature changes and it doesn't behave differently if it changes by 30 degrees, either Fahrenheit or centigrade, or low versus high humidity, especially if you're gonna take this on field trips. All of these things you have to test and you have to characterize. Also, ideally, you'd have a couple of these and you'd characterize each and every one of them. This way, when you actually run your experiment at your anointed time, you could leave one running in the lab, one running in your car, one exactly at your sacred site, and so on and so forth. These would be controls, but that's a separate issue that's not entirely necessary for this already fairly long discussion. Remember the bottom line. We need to know how the device behaves when nothing special is going on. Without that knowledge, we can't say that it behaves differently when something special is going on, just like my flickering light example. After we have working equipment, we have verified equipment, and we have well-documented and analyzed baselines, then we perform our actual measurements. Say you turn on the experiment during a solar eclipse, or if you want to follow the claim that you need to do this at some high energy site, then you'd need to take your equipment there also get a baseline there just to make sure that you haven't broken your equipment in transit or messed up the setup, and then run the experiment. You gather your data. You run the experiment in the exact same way as you ran it before when doing the baseline. Again, if you had multiple apparatus, then you'd run them in various locations at the same time, and you'd actually have other people running them in order to get multiple independent tests of the phenomenon, just so that you couldn't chalk up the weird result to one of them and not the others as evidence of your phenomenon. After all the data are gathered in our basic experiment with our basic premise, the data analysis should be fairly easy. 
Remember that the prediction is that, during the alignment event, the inertia of the tuning fork is going to change. Maybe it's just me, but based on this premise, here's what I would expect to see during, say, the transit of Venus across the Sun if the hypothesis were true. The computer would record data identical to the baseline while Venus is away from the Sun. When Venus makes contact with the Sun's disk, you would start to see a deviation that would increase until Venus's disk is fully within the Sun's. Then it would be at a steady, different value from the baseline for the duration of the transit. Or possibly, perhaps, it would increase slowly until Venus is most inside of the Sun's disk, so its best alignment, and then decrease slightly until Venus's limb makes contact with the Sun's limb, and then you'd get a rapid return to the baseline as Venus's disk exit the Sun, and you'd have a steady baseline thereafter. Regardless, the basic data is a series of numbers. The frequency that you recorded around the event and your baseline. You run the same statistics on each, and you use the statistics to determine if one is different from the other. There are numerous ways to do this, but the easiest one to understand again gets to the average and standard deviation. You might get a result that is very obviously different, like before your average was 360 Hz and during the transit it very clearly averages 450 Hz. That's a big difference, but remember the standard deviation. What if your baseline is 360 Hz and the average during the transit is 360.8 hertz. Is that different enough to be a solid detection? In other words, you need to determine whether the variation you see is different enough from baseline to be considered a real effect. We'll use the same numbers from before for the baseline, 360 hertz with a standard deviation of 0.5 hertz. Meaning that we should expect the data 68.3% of the time to be within 0.5 Hz of 360 if the null hypothesis is correct. The null hypothesis is that there's no hyperdimensional physics effect. That's the null hypothesis, and we have to assume that's correct unless the statistics show it can be rejected, and then it can only be rejected to a certain confidence level. You never have proof of something in science, you only have proofs in math. So, 360 plus or minus 0.5 hertz during our week-long baseline. Only the transit of Venus didn't last a week, it's only a few hours. So let's say that you could collect data for the whole thing, and you managed to get something like 12 hours of the transit, just to make the numbers easier. Let's say also that if the hyperdimensional physics thing were true, you would get a single different value throughout the transit than you do when it's not transiting. So it would look sort of like a step function. You'd use other statistics to determine other features, but I want to make this easy since I'm not using graphs right now. I'm already 20 minutes into the episode. So for the 12 hours of the transit, taking measurements 10 times a second, you get 43,200 measurements. It's a lot, but it's not 864,000 that you got for the baseline. So the statistics might be worse, probably will be worse. So let's say that your average is different during the transit. You get 360.8 Hz on average, but you couldn't control temperature very well out in the open, and you have fewer data points, so your standard deviation is larger, maybe plus or minus 1 Hz. So you have your baseline 360 and your test 360.8, but 68.3% of the time, 
your baseline is 359.5 to 360.5 hertz, and your test was 359.8 to 361.8 hertz. In other words, these overlap within one sigma. There is a non-trivial chance that you would get this result just by running the experiment in the lab again for 12 hours. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in physics, the gold standard for detection is 5 sigma. This means in this case that you would need to multiply each standard deviation by 5, and then add that to your baseline. So, you would need to have your average from the transit of Venus be 367.5 hertz in order to have less than one in a million chance of this being a statistical fluke. But now let's say you can't. Your theory predicts that the variation is only going to be that 0.8 hertz difference. How would you get better statistics to show this effect within 5 sigma? The answer is that you would need different and better equipment. A tuning fork that's more consistently 360 hertz, so better manufacturing meaning more expensive. You'd need a longer event. Maybe some faster reader, so instead of reading the tuning fork's frequency every 0.1 seconds, you can read it every 0.01 seconds. Those are really the only ways I can think of, but this is why physics experiments are expensive. We seek to understand more and more subtle phenomenon, smaller and smaller effects, and in order to do that, we have to have better and better equipment that can give much more consistent results. It's all about decreasing that standard deviation. Now, after you've done all this, despite what one may think or want, regardless of how extraordinary one's results are, you have to repeat them. If in our experiment our baseline was the 360 plus or minus 0.5 hertz, and our transit was 400 plus or minus 1 hertz, that's exciting. That's like, what, a 40 sigma result? That would get you more funding, but it doesn't prove the phenomenon. You need to replicate it over and over and over again. Different place, different situation. Preferably, other independent groups with independent equipment does the repetition as well. Unfortunately, no matter how much you might want it, one experiment by one person does not a radical change in physics make. Numerous experiments by one person, but then other people aren't able to replicate your results, also does not a radical change in physics make. So now I've spent almost 25 minutes explaining how you'd need to design and conduct an experiment with Richard's apparatus and the basic form of his hypothesis, and why you have to do some of the more boring steps like baseline measurements and statistical analysis. To date, Richard claims to have conducted about 10 different trials. One was at Coral Castle in Florida during, I think, back during the 2004 Venus transit. Another was outside of Albuquerque in New Mexico during the 2012 Venus transit because he couldn't get funding from foolish, foolish people to go to Egypt. Another was in Hawaii during a solar eclipse. Another was at Stonehenge during something. Another was in Mexico during December 21st, 2012, etc., etc., etc. For all of those, he has neither stated that he performed baseline measurements nor has he presented any such baseline data. So right off the bat, his results, whatever they are, 
are meaningless because we don't know how his equipment behaves under normal circumstances. Going back to my light example, I don't know if the light above my special table flickers at all times or just when those important people are over, if I don't bother to turn it on when those important people aren't there. Richard Hoagland also has not shown all of his data, despite promises to do so. You can find some of the graphs of his data on his website. One plot that he says was taken at Coral Castle during the Venus transit back in 2004 is typical of the kinds of graphs that he shows. My reading of it is that it shows his watch appears to have a baseline frequency of around 360 Hz, as it should. The average, however, as calculated by the Accutron diagnostic software that he's using, states that the average is 361.611 Hz, although we don't know how long that's an average over. The instability is 12.3 minutes per day, meaning that it's a pretty crappy watch. It's also over 40 years old. These watches have not been made in over 40 years, so by manufacturer definition, his watch cannot be newer than 40 years old. Remember, the frequency of a tuning fork depends on its mass. If you got a bit of dirt stuck to it, that could be enough to throw it off. On the actual graph, there's an apparent steady rate that's around 360 hertz, but there are spikes that deviate by up to about 0.3 hertz. Then there's a series of deviations during the time that Venus is leaving the disk of the Sun, but the effect continues after Venus is no longer in front of the Sun. In fact, the deviations from 360 are bigger and more numerous after Venus exits the Sun's disk than when it was there in the first place, the opposite of what Richard should have predicted. In addition, the rough steady state when Venus is in front of the Sun is the same frequency as the apparent steady rate when Venus is off of the Sun's disk. Interestingly, he shows another trace from Coral Castle, and a third one on a different page on his website as well. Same location, same Accutron, because he only has one, and even the same time period. Same number of samples, same sampling rate. The problem is, all three graphs are different traces, and these are supposed to have been happening at the same time. Now, maybe he mislabeled something. I'd prefer not to say that he faked his data. I like to have at least an aloof and haughty sense of decorum on this podcast. But at the very, very, very least, it calls into question a lot of his work on this. If a real scientist were found to have faked their data, they would lose their job and be disgraced. If a real scientist displayed different data that was supposed to have been collected by the same instrument at the same time, at the same place, there would be a significant inquiry. And yet Richard is lauded on Coast to Coast AM and on other places. So what conclusions can be drawn from Richard's public data? Absolutely none. Possibly that he faked it. As I stated, the lack of any baseline measurements automatically mean his data are useless because we don't know what the watch does under normal circumstances. That aside, looking at the data that he's released in picture form, as in we don't have something like a time series text file that we can graph and run our own statistics on, it does not behave as one would predict from Richard's hypothesis. Other graphs that Richard presents from other events show even more steady-state readings and then spikes up to 465 hertz at random times during or near 
when his special times are supposed to be. None of those are what one would predict from his hypothesis. They are what one might expect if he jiggled the cord and didn't have a good connection. But what conclusions does Richard draw from his data? Well, to quote from his website in various places, quote, Stunning physics anomalies. Quote, Staggering technological implications of these simple torsion measurements for real free energy, for real anti-gravity, for real civilian inheritance of the riches of an entire solar system. Quote, These enterprise Accutron results, painstakingly recorded over 2004, now overwhelmingly confirm we do live in a hyperdimensional solar system with all those attendant implications. End quotes. Etc., etc., etc. In the end, the craziness of claiming significant results from what, by all honest appearances, looks like a broken watch is the height of gall, ignorance, or some other words that I won't say. With Richard, I know that he knows better because it's been pointed out to him many, many times what he needs to do in order to make his experiment valid. But this also gets to a broader issue of a so-called amateur scientist who may wish to conduct an experiment to try to prove their non-mainstream idea. They have to do this extra stuff. Doing your experiment and getting weird results does not prove anything. This is also why science is hard, and why only a small fraction of it is the glorious and glamorous press release and the cool results and the cover of Time magazine and all that other stuff. So much of the science process is testing, baseline measurements, data gathering, and data reduction, and then repeating it over and over and over and over and over again. Richard and others seem to think that they can do a quick experiment and then magically that overturns centuries of established science. It doesn't. Quite conveniently, with the last episode on the speed of light changing so that creationists would be happy, Answers in Genesis, three days later, published an article in the Answers Research Journal by Danny Faulkner, another creationist astronomer, about another possible solution to the light travel problem for young Earthers. This is the new news for this episode. To quote, I spent more than 30 years looking for a solution to the light travel time problem, and recently I began thinking about a possibility that I find satisfactory. With so many other proposed solutions, one may legitimately ask, why one more? I see that most of these solutions to the light travel time problem have advantages and disadvantages. If there were one solution that worked, there would not be so many solutions, and there would not be such a sharp disagreement. Please consider my modest proposal. As I have previously argued, Faulkner 1999, I submit that God's work of making the astronomical bodies on day four involved an act not of creating them ex nihilo, but rather forming them from previously created material, namely material created on day one. As a part of God's formative work, light from the astronomical bodies was miraculously made to shoot its way to the earth 
in an abnormally accelerated rate in order to fulfill their function of serving to indicate signs, seasons, days, and years. I emphasize that my proposal differs from CDK in that no physical mechanism is invoked. It is likely space itself that has rapidly moved, and that the speed of light since Creation Week has been what it is today. End quote. In other words, God did it. The rest of the article is showing how this is consistent with the Bible, where the text before goes over all the previous models. So, God did it. That's the new news for what it's worth. This episode's question for Q&A comes from Anders on the SGU forums, who asks, Everyone says there is a massive ocean on Europa, under a crap ton of ice. But how do we know? How certain are we? Well, there's one main line of evidence for a subsurface ocean, and there are a few smaller ones. I'm going to go over the main one and then the theory. The main one is that Europa is way too small to have its own magnetic field because any core should be solid and no longer moving, so it can't generate its own field. It also shouldn't be able to have an induced field because there would be no liquid metal flowing around. But when the Galileo spacecraft flew by Europa, it found that there was in fact an induced magnetic field caused by its passage through Jupiter's magnetosphere. In order to get an induced field, you have to have a highly electrically conductive layer of material somewhere inside of the moon. Salty liquid water is a very, very good one. A liquid core, again, would be a good one too, but its core is almost certainly solid because the moon is so small that it would have cooled by now. So that's the observational, but there's also a theoretical backing which came before the observational evidence. Europa is in resonance with two other large Galilean satellites, Io, or Io, and Ganymede. It also has an elliptical orbit around Jupiter. These all mean that it gets flexed and relaxed during every orbit through tidal effects, and this will heat it up. Theoretical models showed that it could heat up enough that there would be a liquid ocean under any icy crust. So we're pretty sure that there's something down there. We don't really know how deep, we don't really know how thick, different models show different things, but there probably is some type of liquid salty water under the Europa ice sheet. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available. The easiest is to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Regarding feedback, there's a bit of feedback for this time. First, again, regarding the last episode on the changing speed of light. I stated that a guy named Omphalos had this idea that light was created en route to Earth so we can't tell stuff is young. I was incorrect, as pointed out by several people. To quote Rational Wiki, the hypothesis was promoted by the 19th century naturalist Philip Henry Goss, maybe Goss, G-O-S-S-E, in his book Omphalos, published in 1857, although earlier examples of similar thought exist. So it was the book, not the guy. Minor correction, many people sent it in, there it is. Another correction has to do with the puzzler from three episodes ago, the John Carter one. The solution I gave in episode 80 was apparently incorrect, a gross overestimation. This is what happens when people don't send in solutions. I can't use the best person in the class's answers as the grading key. I had gone through some kinematic equations and gotten rather large values. 
Warwick used freefall time under Earth's gravity from the maximum jump height to get the time as opposed to my gross overestimation. You also only have to get your center of mass up to half of the height that you achieve based on how high jumps are actually done. Using that, he got a shorter height of only around 4 meters for a high jump on Mars. Yeah, that's, that's still 4 meters, about 12, 13-ish feet. I wouldn't mind being able to jump that high. In a very different way of solving the problem, Jason G. from Des Moines, or Des Moines, Iowa, United States, used energy. The potential energy from your maximum height is just your mass times the gravity times height, and you have to expend that energy in order to get to that height. So scale by gravity, and you also get around 4 to 5 meters. So I was wrong. Again, the lesson learned is that other people have to send in solutions so I don't get it wrong. The final bit of feedback is on a blog post about my 2012 psychic predictions. There was someone who decided to comment. Their name was Psychic Readings Online. They commented, I would like to say that this write-up very pressured me to check out because of the information all about psychic predictions. Great post, love to share this one. Now, keep in mind, this was a lengthy post where I graded about 550 different psychic predictions made by something like two dozen different psychics and showed that they had a hit rate of somewhere around 5%, which was roughly chance. And yet I get this bot saying that I did a great job. Now, I know it's a bot, but still, thanks! With that said, it's time for The Puzzler, where each episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. There was no Puzzler last episode, but with this episode, with the main segment on hyperdimensional physics and experimental design, The Puzzler might be a bit easier than usual, but we'll see. Remember, send in a solution so that I don't get it wrong. Now, I mentioned that Richard Hoagland actually claims that orientation relative to the spinning sphere matters. If that's the case, how would you modify the basic design of the experiment that I outlined, and what additional things might you need to keep track of? Try to figure out the answer and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next episode. And that episode should be about David Sarita. So if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on him, please send it in. I know I said last time that he would be the feature of this episode, but I had literally about 40 hours of material to listen to to get a handle on the guy. I'm still only partway through. I have about 16 hours left. So it's taking a tad longer than expected. In terms of announcements, there are two. First, my interview on The Conspiracy Skeptic has been posted, I think two days ago, and I've linked to it in the show notes. Carl and I talk about my TAM experience this year, my new WND Watch blog, and numerous other things. I listened to the interview last night, and it wasn't too embarrassing, though I do call someone an obnoxious prick at one point, straying from my usual sense of decorum, although it could have just been a subconscious tick instead. Audio pareidolia, anyone? For the second announcement, for those who've asked, my move is going... okay. It's going slowly. You never quite realize how much stuff you have until you have to actually pack it up, and it seems as though the more you pack, the more you have. At the same time, it's amazing how much you can fit into one car. 
I'll be fully moved out by August 9th, so this is the last podcast I'll be recording from this secret location. But then, I head out to a conference in Arizona on August 13th. If anyone is in the Flagstaff, Arizona area and would like to meet up, let me know. For those of you who haven't asked me about my move, shame on you all. That wraps up this topic for the 82nd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned something at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email to podcast.sjrdesign.net. I'm almost caught up with email. Leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, or you can leave a comment on the blog post for the episode, comment on the Facebook page of the podcast. You can even tweet me, at PseudoAstra. I do read every message, even if I'm three months behind, and I do appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please do write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. It really does help. If you liked it, Tell lots and lots and lots and lots of random people. You know, post it on some web forum that you're on. 